0: We, we got to the point and it was something we strove to do to where you can't tell who filmed what. And even now, as I'm going through our archives, I have to really think back and think, did I film this or did Brett film this?
1: Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound, conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. The South is full of storytellers. Everybody knows that, but what have those storytellers got to say, right now, about the state of the South and the larger world? That's what Craig Renault set out to discover. He's the producer and director of the three-hour documentary series, Southern Storytellers, which debuts on PBS this week. It features some of the South's most interesting contemporary voices, from novelist Jesmyn Ward, to singer Jason Isbell to poet Natasha Tretheway. You see them both out on the road doing their work and at home visiting their old hometowns or hanging out with their families. You also get to see old clips of writers from Tennessee Williams to Ralph Ellison wrestling with the idea of what it means to be a storyteller from the south. Renault is a Peabody award-winning filmmaker known for documentaries like HBO's Dope Sick Love and Vice's Last Chance High. He did most of that work with his brother, Brent. They made films together from the time they were kids growing up in Little Rock. But last year, Brent was killed in an ambush by Russian soldiers in Ukraine as he worked on a documentary about refugees. And now Craig's mission is to tell not just the stories of the refugees, By the story of his brother. Here's our conversation. You've worked on all kinds of documentary projects all over the world. What drew you to this one?
0: My brother and I did a documentary for PBS called State of the Art, where we uh, filmed one of the first exhibitions that the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art did when they were first opening up in Bentonville. Um, And that started a relationship with PBS. And during that project, uh, Bill Gardner, the executive producer that we were working with at PBS, we were having a beer one night, and he mentioned to me that he graduated from the University of Arkansas grad program and just said, you know, I've always wanted to do something on the South. But I don't want it to be an over romanticized thing of the South that we always see. And then through that conversation with PBS, a producer at PBS at the time said, what about writers, you know, and so we like we started digging into that idea. First, it was going to be about novelists, um, and then we wanted to open that up to any kind of storytellers and writers uh, based in the South. And so the idea was, you know, dropping viewers into different regions of the South, but but looking at the South through the greatest writers of our time right now. You know, and, and from a storytelling standpoint, it was really nice to have a mix of these different genres because, you know, it allows you to go from a writer like Jasmine Ward, who arguably is is one of the greatest writers alive today. She's won the National Book Award twice, you know, and, and somebody who writes in the way that she thinks. But then, you know, you can jump in the same episode to somebody like Tank and the Bangas, you know, in New Orleans that is, um, you know, really hot right now and and getting a lot of attention. Um, and it was just really fun, you know, like like just where their minds are at, the kind of things that they are thinking about You know, when we really tried to give an open canvas to these writers, we would have a lot of pre-conversations and Zooms with them to say, you know, what's on your mind? You know, if you have a camera crew show up and you can talk about anything you want to talk about, you know, and that was interesting too. You know, we don't really, it's not a review of people's writing or their books or their music. You know, we don't say this is what David Joy is writing about. We just go into his community and he takes us around and shows us what's on his mind. And somebody like David Joy, who lives in Jackson County, North Carolina, you know, he wanted to talk about the disappearance and the extinction of mountain culture um, with the overdevelopment of of that region in Appalachia. So that was really interesting just to give these writers that much freedom and then to try to shape and mold that footage into something that, that had a narrative
1: one of the things that struck me about the three hours of episodes is that it moves maybe I'm just used to like jump cuts and stuff in in television and the movies these days this moves at a much slower pace and I'm wondering how we all how much y'all thought about it it's very unhurried people you know you hear people do entire songs or read a full poem or they're just kind of lingering at their house or something like that. Was that all part of the intent of how y'all approach
0: this? Yeah, I'd say it's a combination of things that, uh, you know, one, that is, that is our style. I mean, we are cinema verite filmmakers and we still really believe in that style of filmmaking. Um, hopefully I'm not going to be outdated soon, you know, with the pace of, of everything with our digital medium these days. But, um, it's also, it was intentional with with covering storytellers and songwriters and people writing poems and writing songs i mean i didn't feel like artistically that's um i don't want to chop up somebody's poetry into a sound bite you know these are these if you watch jericho brown deliver a poem you want to hear his entire poem because you can't just take a few lines out of that poem and get the full meaning um, and he's such a powerful spoken word um artists when he delivers these poems and so yeah that was very intentional the same with the songwriters you know we were very fortunate to be able to film with somebody like jason Isbell, and he who agreed to let us record two songs that had not been released yet and that we knew would be released right when this was coming out Um, and so again we just we did our best not to hack up these um, performances or these poems um, so it, it was intentional, and and I think it's also the pace of the South. You know, I mean, it's summertime in the South right now, and you know that's how it feels to be a Southerner in the South if you're from here during the summer. Um, so yeah, it was it was all very intentional.
1: Yeah, there's also in many of the writers that you talk to, you you hang out with their friends or their families off. Sometimes their extended families. Is that something that y'all set out to do, or is that just something that sort of happened as you visited with these folks?
0: Yeah, you know, as a as a verite filmmaker, your hope is always access and the most intimate access you can get. And then you try to make the best use of that access. And you never know with each person that you're working with how much they're going to open up, but that's always the goal is to go and and get people relaxed and, and get into their lives in a way that the viewer feels like they're right there with them. You know, it's my,
1: like Adia Victoria. You got to, you, you got to shoot her wedding basically.
0: Yeah. We shot her wedding and that was fun. We got on a call with her and you never know what to expect. And then it started with, well, Hey, come, you know, come to our place outside of Nashville and and I'll cook you dinner. And then that taping went great. And then she said, or I think I overheard her saying about her upcoming wedding. And we just said, hey, what if we, you know, what if we come and record your wedding? And she's like, sure, you know, come record the wedding. Um, And I mean, that's what I love about what I do. You know, those opportunities are great and it makes for good storytelling. I do feel like in 100 years, 200 years, these are the writers that people will be talking about the same way we talk about Maya Angelou and Eudora Welty and Harper Lee today. Um, So I love being able to make a historical document like that. And I tried to think about that when when we were filming of, you know, what would I want to see if I got to go back in time and hang out with Eudora Welty? What would I be asking her? Where would I wanna go with her? Um, You know, and so that was the idea behind it.
1: Yeah, and it also seems like, especially with the the writers of color. Well, I th- I think of Wen who his family was, you know, brought there as, to Arkansas as Vietnamese refugees, and and that sort of thing. There are people who are Southerners, sort of not necessarily by their nature, you know, they didn't uh, arrive there on purpose, I guess, and others who have wanted to escape and needed to get away to sort of find themselves, but they all get kind of drawn back in. I mean, I I didn't know whether you thought of that as sort of a commonality among some of these folks.
0: Yeah, and just, you know, I I think, I mean, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, I went to Little Rock Central High School where the Little Rock Nine desegregated Central High School in 1957. Um, You know, and so being a southerner for me, it was always, you know, we were very much taught that history at Little Rock Central High School. So you very much thought of the South in terms of black and white. But that is not the reality of the South. And especially now that is not the reality of the South, it is it is changing in wonderful ways. Um, But that was not even difficult in the series to, you know, we didn't need to say, Oh, we need to make sure we have diversity in the series. Let's go dig for diverse writers outside of of black and white writers you know um so if you just if you just simply approach it by who are the best writers today and being talked about somebody like we Wynn pops right up he wrote ryan the last dragon um was nominated for an oscar for that he's an emmy winning writer he's writing all of disney's best animated stuff for children and i, I love the segment with him i mean the, the home video footage that he provided us was a gold mine i mean i i'm just I'm a sucker for that type of footage anyway, but it really spoke to our best qualities of what it means with the American dream and to be Americans, you know, and the opportunities here with his, you know, this home video footage of his mother starting this restaurant in El Dorado, Arkansas, but Kui filming all that and capturing it in a way that works its way into the writing of something like Raya and the Last Dragon and the way that inspires children. You know, my son is half Japanese. Um, born in arkansas you know we live in austin texas now and and when i and he wants to be a writer he wants to be a a feature film creator because he thinks documentaries are boring (laughs) but he was so excited and and inspired to hear that you know the person that wrote ryan the last dragon was was asian american it's there that's the you know just like like queen says in the filming you know, people don't often think of a face like his, but but they are just as much a fabric of the South and the United States as, as anybody.
1: That family and community thing, the other portion that really struck me in the documentary was when Angie Thomas, who wrote The Hate You Give, I guess is back in her hometown and maybe back at a, a park or somewhere where she kind of grew up and she runs into these kids who don't know her and then she explains she's the one who wrote that book and then they they all know her. And that just seemed first of all that's like a dream for a writer, but also probably a really nice moment for you guys too doing the filming of that, right?
0: Those are magical moments that you hope you can capture on camera, you know, and you hope that you don't mess up by not being recording when those things happen in real time. So that was a really lucky moment. And what was interesting is Angie had just been talking to us about you know why she writes for young people. You know, and people also often say, "Well, why do you write for that age group? Why are you not writing for adults?" um You know, and she talks about her personal experiences of being bullied and inspiring kids at that age, and how seriously she takes that. But she also talked about how much, you know, young African American people, males in particular, are so stereotyped about their education level, what their interests are, and everything else. And so, to have had that conversation walk into a park where she is recounting a story at a, at a local park where she had been shot at as a kid. You see these kids off in the distance. You can imagine that the stereotype in people's head might be, who are these kids lingering over there? But when they walk up, it's this wonderful scene that that just breaks so many stereotypes right in front of you in real time.
1: I notice the transitions between, as you're going from one person to another, most of the shots were bridges what you felt like that you were doing there.
0: I grew up, uh, I was born in 1974. So, you know, I grew up with movies like stand by me. Um, and my brother and I, when we were kids in Arkansas, we were latchkey kids and my parents would work during the summers. And we had this dog, this, this Brittany Spaniard that would get out of the fence in our house in Arkansas. And we would follow that dog through the woods, um, onto train tracks along the Arkansas river. And so my memory of growing up in the South is is very, it looks a lot like Stand By Me in terms of walking train tracks, going over bridges. And so for me, that's what I think about in the South. I think about those kind of locations. And so um, so yeah, the transitions were were meant to be a moment to to be quiet, a meant to a moment to soak in the landscape of the South. You know, you've just watched a segment with these great writers. You need a minute to kind of process what they've just spoken about. Um, You know, there's a quote from David Joy in the first episode about the importance of of setting and landscape in place, you know, and I think for any writer, those things are so important in writing. So I think it was it was an attempt to do that as well, to always make sure that setting is, is front and center.
1: You mentioned David Joy and he talks about early in the documentary how much he likes to spend time in the gray, meaning you know, kind of reveling walling around the complications of the South. And I probably I'm guessing that you feel like that's where this documentary spends a lot of time as well, right?
0: Yeah, and, and he's so right. And I think for, for storytellers and writers, and I feel this way as as a storyteller, the truth is always much more complicated than than it's often presented, especially where we're at as a country right now. And and everybody knows that. But yet, I feel like a lot of times we get caught up in these black and white conversations and everything is more complex than that. And then you take a region like the South, that if you're not from here, you know, I mean, Southerners always have a chip on their shoulder about the way other people perceive them, particularly Northerners, Um, you know, and I think that's one reason why PBS wanted this series to be made by Southern filmmakers. But it is it is uh, it was such a brilliant quote by David because it's true. You know, and, and that's that's a beautiful thing. And and that is life it is more complicated than that. Um and the region is more complicated than that and the history is more complicated than that. And that that's what that's what writers are supposed to do. You know, the, the series ends with with the archival clip of Ralph Ellison talking about this exact thing, you know, that if the writers do not succeed in, in talking about those complexities then they failed to do their job.
1: When we come back, Craig Renaud talks about recovering his brother's body from Ukraine and how he decided to document the journey.
0: When I was packing my bag, I could see my camera off to the left and I was thinking, do I take the camera? And I could hear my brother's voice so clearly like, of course, of course, you're going to take the camera.
1: That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now... Back to my conversation with Craig Renault. So, the first episode of this uh, series ends with a kind of a title card that says, dedicated to great Southern storyteller Brent Renault. Could you sort of explain, if you don't mind, yeah. for people who might not know the details, uh, what happened to your brother?
0: Yeah, sure. Um... So March, uh, March 13, 2022, it's been about a year and four months ago, um, while we were working on this, you know, my, my brother and I have always covered conflict zones, and my brother in particular has been to every major conflict since 9-11. It's just, it's something that, that he did often, and he did well. Um, and we were working on a documentary about refugees at the time, and I was a producer on the project, I did not go to Ukraine with him at the time and he was killed. Uh, they were ambushed by Russian soldiers. Um, and, and he was killed instantly on March 13th. Um, I found out immediately before it hit national news. Um, it hit Twitter because a photograph of him uh, was released. And then it was all over the world instantly. But you know, within 24 hours, I was on a plane to go to Ukraine and and I spent about a week with local journalists, um, you know, bringing my brother back and and making sure uh, that Juan Arredondo, who was a colleague of ours that was in the car and he survived, that we got him, you know, medevaced out of Ukraine. He, he had to undergo about 10 surgeries while he was in Ukraine, because he took a bullet to the back. So yeah, the dedication at the end is about my brother. He was he was the first journalist killed during the Ukraine conflict.
1: Had he or both of you been in really tight, dangerous spots like that before?
0: Many, many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we uh, we learned filmmaking. Uh, our mentor was John Alpert. He's a very well-known uh, documentary filmmaker who's covered wars all over the world. And when we started working for him at the Downtown Community Television Center, we started off as editors and then eventually became camera people and producers for him. We did a film for HBO called Dope Sick Love that was our first directorial debut, and then not long after Dope Sick Love was finished, uh, 9-11 happened, you know, we were working in Chinatown in New York City out of the firehouse where DCTV is located um, during 9-11 and And when that, you know, in Afghanistan happened and in Iraq, you know, John just said to us, you know, I'm going to return to my career as a as a war filmmaker and and I'm not going to force you guys to go, of course. And do you guys think this is something you want to do? And we never set out to be conflict filmmakers. Um, you know, at the time before 9-11, if you remember, there wasn't much conflict going on in the world. And so, so yeah, we agreed. And we started first started going to War Zones with John Alpert, you know, the, one of the best at that. And we got to learn from one of the best of how to stay safe and and then, once you have a name, a name for doing that and people know that you're able to do it safely, you start getting a lot more of those opportunities. Um, another southern story that we did uh, was a 10 part series for Discovery Channel. It was Discovery Times Channel at the time, it also was on Discovery Channel, called Off to War at the time, where we embedded with Arkansas National Guard units and we went to Iraq for, for a year, we embedded for a year. It was supposed to be a peace and stability operation um the day that we went into iraq with these guys was the day that the contractors were hung from the bridge in Fallujah, and the, the war changed dramatically uh the day that we rolled into iraq we got to the base A mortar came in killed the first three arkansas national guard soldiers by the end of the first month there was 12 people killed you know we were in humvees with these guys every single day going out of the wire um so we saw a lot of combat in that year that we were in iraq my My 30th birthday, I was in an ambush that lasted about an hour. where We were pinned down at night where RPGs blew up a vehicle in front of me. And so, yeah, it was many, many times. And we were always able to do it safely and come back safely. And, you know, and and my brother just was at the wrong place at the wrong time, this time in Ukraine.
1: I know um, I've known lots of combat photographers, reporters and things like that, and they all have kind of different reasons for doing what they do. I always think I could understand going to do that. It's a little harder to understand to keep going back. And I just wonder what you felt like you and your brother's kind of motivations were there.
0: I think we always just approached it from the, from the filmmaking perspective and the opportunity of being able to document and capture these historical moments you know, even after we started going to those places, again, we never, we never said we are going to be combat filmmakers and and journalists, you know, it was, it was always more about the storytelling and the access. And so with off to war, it was literally my best friend's father pulled me aside at his wedding and Brent and I had just come back from our first trip to Iraq, right after the war had started. And he said, you know, nobody knows this, but they're about to call up 3,000 National guardmen from the from Arkansas. It'll be a historic deployment, the biggest since the Korean War. Do you guys think you'd be interested in documenting this? And I said, you know, of course. Um, and within a week, he had us meeting with the general who was in charge of the brigade. So it was really about those opportunities to to be there in moments like the first Iraqi national elections, or you know, going to places like Juarez, Mexico, where you know, right across our border, you you had such high rates of 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 murders and death when that when that um, war was going on there along the border there. So it's always just been about opportunities as a filmmaker and to be able to to provide these historical documents. It's never really been about the adrenaline of capturing these stories. You know, we really have always wanted to tell people stories who were caught up in these conflicts, and that's exactly what my brother gave his life doing, you know, we, I was talking to my brother every single day, probably three or four times a day. And, and, you know, we were never cavalier, we took the risk very seriously. and, And even the days preceding his death, constant conversations with him about the safety, what where he's going the next day, you know, what he's planning to do and why, and he was actually supposed to leave two days before he was killed but he just did not feel like he had the perfect story. You know, he really wanted to capture refugees um, as they were fleeing the conflict and follow them, you know, all the way out of Ukraine. And he said, I feel like I have really good footage, but I don't have that story yet that will really allow people to sympathize with what it's like to to have your your nation destroyed and have to flee. And my brother was like such a perfectionist in, in, in his storytelling that he kept extending the trip. And, and when they, the day that they were killed, they came across a bridge that had been destroyed. They got out of the vehicle with their security team and started walking to try to get to the next bridge, got in a civilian car who offered to take them. Um, and then they were, they were ambushed, but his goal was to get to these refugees who were fleeing that bridge. So it was always about the storytelling about the people and just trying to have as big of an impact as you could through your films.
1: And this was part of a, a documentary y'all have been working on 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 refugees I, I assume you're moving forward with that
0: yeah it's shifted a little bit the story now will be about my brother's last project so um i'm working on that now you know and trying to kind of figure out what that story is how much is it about us as brothers how much is it about us as filmmakers and how much is it about the incident that happened um when he was killed I, and i made the decision to go to Ukraine, because, you know, the US Embassy had pulled out of Ukraine, I was pretty convinced that that we would not have gotten my brother back. um, If I didn't go, but I was also, you know, very set on getting the footage that he had been there for a week filming. Um, And I, I did not want his work to to not be seen. And so I had two, two main objectives when I went was to get my brother and get Juan out and to get his footage and I managed to do both.
1: I read that you had done that and I I can't imagine what that's like to go have to recover your brother basically.
0: Yeah. And I think that's where having a camera really helped me, you know, because when I went, uh, you know, it, it was the most difficult thing I've done in my life. And over the course of a career covering these places, you develop an ability to compartmentalize and to shift into. A certain frame of mind when you're seeing horrific things in war zones or Haiti earthquake or any of these places that we've covered and you, you turn off you know you turn off your emotions to do the job and and the camera becomes a filter um, and you process it later and that's exactly what I did I just I picked up a camera I could when I was packing my bag I could see my camera off to the left and I was thinking do I take the camera and I could hear my brother's voice so clearly like of course of course you're going to take the camera and so I called a friend of mine, Christoph Putzel, who, you know, we had worked with in many war zones and told him I was going to be passing through New York to catch my flight over there. And he's based in New York. And he said, well, I'm, I'm going with you. And so, so we went.
1: Tell me about the two of y'all growing up. I mean, did you did you make films together when you were kids or anything like that? Or how did all this start?
0: Yeah, I think it goes back to being Ratchke kids and and bored you know often in the summer times when when our parents were working and it was nothing to do i mean i have pictures that you'll see in the documentary that i'm i'm working on about my brother you know i have pictures of my brother with these these old film cameras that my dad had my dad actually had a had a uh, super 8 camera when we were kids growing up and fortunately i have all that footage too of us as kids that was documented on film Wow. Um, and so we were always picking up those cameras and playing around with them. You know, my brother was definitely a very gifted storyteller from a young age, uh, always writing like a prolific writer. I mean, when he died and I went through his, his belongings, I mean, he has hundreds of journals filled up from every single trip we've ever been on and then going all the way back to a pretty young age of, of him, just constantly writing. Um, So, yeah, we were we were always playing around with the medium. And um, I remember we watched this documentary that we were obsessed with called Ring of Fire about these two brothers that that went and, you know, were searching for these hidden cultures and and Indonesia and these other places. And we were fascinated by that. Um, So, yeah, we were always drawn to storytelling.
1: And did you always intend to work together or did that happen later on?
0: No, that happened later on. We were both finishing college and my brother was a graduate student in Columbia at the teacher's college uh, studying sociology. And I was finishing my degree at the University of Oregon in anthropology. So, you know, kind of similar subjects. So, you know, I had been taking courses about ethnographic film and had an interest. There were no cell phones at the time. And I remember I called my brother from the University of Oregon library on a pay phone just to catch up. It had been months since we spoke. And and he said that he had run across this filmmaker, John Alpert um, in this place, Downtown Community Television Center in New York. And he had had signed up for an internship because they also teach these community TV classes there. And he invited me to take off a semester and come crash on on his couch. I mean, when I first got to New York City, first it was his couch and then for a while, I slept on a fold-out lawn chair until the lawn chairs like actually collapsed in between it you know we were (laughs) completely broke artists filmmakers but it was wonderful you know we just dctv was a great environment of a lot of interns who were young filmmakers that were hungry at the time and we would stay up all hours of the night working on these documentaries that we were attempting to do and um yeah it was just a really wonderful moment
1: and it was there anything about working with him i mean did you have some sort of you know like family intuition or something working together that made it easier than when you worked with other
0: folks? Yeah, I think that, you know, the trust is there when it's your family member, um, you know, going to places like Iraq. I mean, my poor mother, but she, you know, she never, neither one of our parents ever discouraged us from going to these places. They always supported us. But, you know, I can remember going into Iraq at those moments where you're you know you're terrified you're not admitting that you're terrified but you are but what better person to have next to you you know than your your brother at those times um, yeah and just from a creative standpoint you know i think we were we we got to the point and it was something we strove to do to where you can't tell who filmed what and even now as i'm going through our archives i have to really think back and think did i film this or did brent film this because we tried to perfect our style in a way that it was you know, completely the same. Um, yeah, and it was just you know we would our editing process as well. I mean, Brent was the hardest worker you'll ever meet. I mean, he's the kind of person where I might be like, the film is great, and he's like, it's not perfect. And he's that person who's grinding it out till four in the morning, all the way up till you hand in a project. So, you know, having your brother alongside you working like that was was wonderful. And and I can see why there's so many brother and sibling creative partners because it you know it it does work
1: and he got to work on southern storytellers some
0: he did in the early parts of it yeah in the early parts of it but um but most of southern storytellers was done right after COVID, and and he missed most of it because because of being killed in ukraine
1: what i want to ask and I, i i guess i'll end here i don't know if it's maybe in southern storytellers or in something else you two did together i'm wondering as you look over work that you've done together things that you see and those things that remind you of him
0: yeah i i think um you know and and that tribute to him at the end i think is is very accurate you know in saying one of the great southern storytellers uh you know i, I think he was somebody who told stories with heart, and he he really cared, he actually gave a damn about the people he was telling stories about. Um, but he also just had a knack for really capturing a story in a way that's very difficult to do, especially in a medium like documentary filmmaking, where you're working with so many endless hours of footage, you know, my brother, I think we are different gifts where I have an ability to get people to trust me really quickly and to disarm people really quickly and Brent's ability was he could take that you know hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage and pull it down into this perfect story that that was perfection and you know during the editing of this process you know many people said to me you know you should take time off you shouldn't be working so hard after this happened for me, it's quite the opposite. If if I was not working, I was, I was ruminating, you know, and kind of going crazy about what had happened. Whereas if, you know, those late night hours of working on this project and actually Juan Arredondo, who was injured with my brother, you know, he would come down and stay with me for weeks at a time working on Southern Storytellers to finish it. And Juan and I, you know, would talk a lot about Brent's process and, you know, we felt very close to him while we were finishing this series.
1: There are few things harder, and at the same time more rewarding, than working with family. Craig and Brent Renault worked side by side for decades, diving into the dark corners of the world to shine a light on injustice. Brent Renault was killed doing that work, and now his brother has to make sense of it. It's an exercise in Southern storytelling, in some ways just like the storytelling in his new PBS documentary. There's a technical aspect to it, a structure and form that you learn through years of hard work. But that's there mainly as scaffolding for the emotion. The whole point is to make you feel something. And the thing about being a storyteller is that you get to feel the story all over again, every time you tell it. It's a way to process whatever you need to process. The joy or the astonishment or the grief. The story isn't just for the audience, it's for the storyteller too. And now, Craig Renault faces a story he wishes he never had to tell. A story he can tell better than anyone. And a story that might someday bring peace, not just to those who watch, but to the ones still living the story. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner, You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.